Good morning. Nice to see all of you. If you would, join me in John chapter 7. As you are turning to John chapter 7, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to get one to you. So raise your hand high, keep it, keep it up until we get one in your hands, and then you can join me in John 12. As you're turning there, one announcement. It's one you've already heard. It was an email I sent out uh, on Thursday. And we have bittersweet news that we have a staffing transition taking place. Sarah Papa John is moving on from FCF and down to the valley, uh, moving a few hours away. Uh, she has a new job down there and to be very close to family. So it's, it's sweet that they're going to go be a, by family. It's a very good move for her and Alice. Um, but it's bitter for us because she's been such a wonderful blessing to our church family. So pray that you, uh, please pray for her in the transition. Her last Sunday with us is the 19th. It's happening very quick. Uh, as the job opportunity happened very quick. And so praise the Lord that one of our members, Katie Harmeyer, is she is stepping into the interim children's director position. And she'll be in that position for the foreseeable future as the Lord makes evident what the next steps are. Um, so, so please pray for our children's ministry and for this transition taking place. So we are in John 12. As we circled into this text last week, we know that the end of John 11... And all of John 12 is a real significant transition in the book of John. And the transition is from the three to three and a half years of public ministry of Jesus to about a three-hour evening in the upper room Last Supper discourse. And what's happening here in this long section is there's seven different episodes that are uh, happening in rapid succession that are closing up that public ministry and preparing us for the private ministry of Jesus. Last time together, we surveyed the first eight verses in particular, where we saw Mary anoint Jesus' feet with the uh, perfume. And today we come to a well-known text, the triumphal entry. So by God's grace, a familiar text will be um, seen in unfamiliar ways to help us understand what exactly is taking place in this text. So with that, let me go ahead and begin by reading our text, verses 12 to 19. We'll pray and then we'll get to work in the word. Scripture reads, John 12, 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Jesus, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer together. 
Well, Father, we, we pray that if there's any hearts among us this morning who have not yet gone to Jesus, by your grace, you would bring them from death to life and darkness to light. And Lord, as we look at this precious passage of Scripture, this amazing moment of you, Jesus, entering Jerusalem, openly worshipped on the colt as the palm fronds are in the air, we pray that this familiar text would be impressed upon our hearts to increase our faith and devotion to you. To that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's people said, Amen. Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, as you look at John 12, last night to our text, right, our text begins the next day. So the previous evening, what we looked at last week together, was that amazing moment when Jesus went to Bethany and into the home of Mary, her sister Martha, and brother Lazarus whom Jesus had raised from the dead, and Mary, as they reclined at table, anointed Jesus' feet with the very expensive and very precious perfume, and she wiped Christ's feet with her hair. And we saw last time that this was an act that was befitting for the preparation of a king to take his throne or a priest to take his office. And we saw last week that Mary's act signaled the only right and true response to Jesus. Faithful adoration and homage to the priest king. And but what Jesus did though is he shocked us in verse 7 that this was not an anointing for coronation. This was an anointing for crucifixion and for burial. And it's this reality, very likely with the the strong aroma of the perfume still on the lower legs of Jesus, it's this moment with this perfume still fragrant that Jesus is now beginning his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And it's that aroma and this moment that makes it so profound as we bring this public ministry of Jesus to a close to prepare for the rest of the book, which is his private ministry. So if you're taking notes, the sermon comes to us in three parts. Here they are. Number one, the song of triumph. We'll look at verses 12 and 13. From there, we'll move to our second point, the ride of triumph. That's verses 14 and 15. Then we'll close our time, and really, application will come to us in this final point, The response to triumph, verses 16 through 19. So let's take this familiar text and look at it with fresh eyes. Point number one, the song of triumph, verse 12 and 13. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees And went out to meet Jesus, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. If you've read the gospel accounts before, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's more prominent in those gospel accounts than it is John. But there's an interesting feature this repetitive event that takes place in the Gospels, that is, if you read it, it's, it's, it's 
comes across as strange. And it's something, it goes along these lines. Jesus performs a miracle or he teaches some amazing teaching. And it incites the crowds to want to forcibly take Jesus and make him king. And what does Jesus do 100% of the time? He flees. He hides. He slips away. It's almost counterintuitive because you would expect that if this indeed is the savior of the world who has come, the God-man, that he would want the recognition of his name to spread. Case in point, consider earlier in the Gospel of John, verse, or chapter 6, verse 15. Chapter 6, verse 15 reads, Perceiving then that they, the crowds, were about to come and take Jesus by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So you have this perplexing reality in all the gospel accounts of Jesus continually hiding himself when it seems that his ministry was having the greatest uh, success, so to speak, from our perspective. Now, that hiding reality pairs with another refrain that we have heard so many times in the gospel of John. Jesus himself saying... Or John uh, sneaking into the text and, and as a narrator saying something to this effect, his hour has not yet, had not yet come. Or Jesus replying, my hour is not yet. It happens all across the book. And so Jesus hiding himself and his hour not yet coming, it's those realities that makes this Palm Sunday, this triumphal entry, so Utterly unique and amazing to the gospel accounts. Why? Jesus' hour has come. He's entering Jerusalem for the Passover week. Passover is a few days away. His hour has come, and now the tactics of his ministry do a 180. Far from leaving the crowds when they want to make him king, here, Jesus not only permits the open worship and the open proclamation that he, in fact, is king, Jesus orchestrates this and he participates in it. Right? The next point is going to tell us that he gets a donkey and rides it into Jerusalem, receiving this worship, acclamation, and praise. Which means then that this is one of the most profound moments of Jesus' ministry shared across all the gospel accounts. And here in John 12, something unique is taking place. And familiarity with the text can often cloud the wonder of a text. So if you look, verse 12 alerts us that the crowd that had gathered the previous night, verse 9 to see Lazarus raised and to participate in the feast, the same crowd now the next morning has congregated at the gates of Jerusalem. And there's many gates in Jerusalem, and we'll circle back to that point later on. But they've gathered at a particular gate where Jesus is to welcome Jesus into Jerusalem and into the temple for this Passover week. Now also, as you look at here in John 12... The Gospel of John has comparatively few direct citations of the Old Testament compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Like, think Matthew, all over the place, especially in the beginning, 
uh, Matthew is always saying something like, this was to fulfill what the prophet so-and-so said, and then he quotes a verse. John is relatively silent on direct citations, although he is profound in terms of prophetic allusions and patterns. But here in John 12, to make this even more meaningful, so to speak, we have two, we have a clustering of Old Testament citations which clue us in even further to the unique, profound moment unfolding before our eyes. And I'm going to argue this morning that like Mary last night, when she was anointing Jesus' feet, for this crowd also, the actions of Mary and the actions of the crowd singing and waving the palms conveys far more than they realize in this moment. And that's where we have to marshal all of Scripture together to understand the sheer wonder of this moment. So, so look again at verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Jesus, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So we needed to notice first two things. First, what the crowd does, taking the palm branches, and second, what they sing. So first, the crowd breaks off branches of palm trees. They wave them in the air. The other gospel accounts tell us they put them on the ground. We know from the next verse that Jesus is on the colt and he's riding it into Jerusalem. And so there's there's trees, as it were, waving in the air and trees on the ground. And, they're, and he's going into Jerusalem. And we call it Palm Sunday. Why are they doing this? You could go back to the law of Moses and read the instructions of what they were supposed to do during the Passover feast and the Passover week. And there's nothing written there about doing this strange act with, with palm branches. So the people, the crowds are doing something unique that is not overtly commanded in Scripture. And what this event reveals is that the crowds understand something about Jesus, albeit dimly, but they understand something about him. So there is no Old Testament command associated with, with Passover. So what are they doing? Well, what the crowd is doing with the palm branches is rooted in their history, just not their biblical history. What do I mean? There is a historical precedent for this action of taking the palm branches and singing a song, but it doesn't come from us, come to us from the Old Testament. It comes to us from the intertestamental period. What does that mean? Well, the Old Testament is closed with its writing. There's a few hundred silent years, and then we have the New Testament. And in that gap, there was still much writing, or some writing rather, taking place by Israel, by the Jews, that captured it's our only access to the history that took place for them during that time. And so, there is a precedent from uninspired writings in the book of 1 Maccabees. In the book of 1 Maccabees, written roughly 200 years prior to this moment, it's the year 171 B.C., 
And what's happened is you've had a transition of power. Alexander the Great has died. He has divided his kingdom among his four generals. And one of them is the wicked Antiochus Epiphanes. And he's the one who goes up into Jerusalem. He profanes the temple. He kills many Jews. He forbids them from keeping everything associated with the law of Moses. And like the book of Judges, much of ethnic Israel capitulates to this wicked king. And they obey his wicked edicts and obey his false and wicked gods and even worship him. But a faithful remnant fled out of the towns of Israel and into the hills and woods and caves, much like David did as he ran, ran from Saul. Guerrilla warfare ensues through the family of the Maccabees. And these sons of Matthias, their father, led and rallied the people of Israel against the evil Antiochus Epiphanes. Eventually, Jerusalem was recaptured and liberated. It was cleansed from the defilement. Temple sacrifices were reinstated after an eight-day cleansing period. Which, by the way, that eight-day cleansing period is called the Feast of Dedication. The very feast that Jesus went up to and celebrated in John 10, 22. It's also called Hanukkah. So Hanukkah is the Feast of Dedication. It is the memorial of this event that took place in between the Testaments when they routed Antiochus Epiphanes and various other generals and wicked people. So the books of Maccabees, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, chronicle this for us. In 1st Maccabees 13, all the brothers have died. Their father has died. There's one brother left. His name is Simon. And he will become the high priest because they were a priestly family. And Simon leads the people in routing the final enemies out of Jerusalem, finally taking the city as a whole. And that's where 1 Maccabees 13 verses 51 to 52 come in. So listen to this uninspired text that is nonetheless helpful for us to understand um, the history of the people of Israel. And, I believe, this moment here in John 12. So, it says, 1 Maccabees thirteen fifty one, On the 23rd day of the second month, in the 171st year, the Jews entered Jerusalem with praise and palm branches and harps and cymbals and stringed instruments and with hymns and songs because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. And Simon decreed that every year they should celebrate this day with rejoicing. Now, Maccabees does not record what the people sang, but we see the Jews in, first, in Maccabees 13, the Jews are streaming into Jerusalem and they have chosen to take palm branches and to wave the palm branches in hand, melody in their throats. They enter Jerusalem because they've been freed from pagan tyranny, Yahweh-hating enemy, and now they're free to worship God and keep His covenant. This happened 200 years before this moment. It's an interesting piece of history 
You can go to 1 Maccabees and read chapters 1 and 2, and it tells you the names of the sons of the Maccabean family. And they are names like this. Simon, Jonathan, Judas, and more. All the famous New Testament biblical names are those names because culturally the people of Israel revered the Maccabees. And so they help, that's why many of the disciples of Jesus are coming from families whose parents named their sons after the Maccabees because of what they did for the people. Now, back to our text. These people, these Israelites, know their history. They read 1 Maccabees. They have just seen Lazarus risen from the dead, eating with Jesus the previous night. It's hard to imagine these Jews don't have this Maccabean moment in mind. For why else would they take palm fronds and wave them in the air? But it's not scripture, and so we hold that loosely in our interpretation. But we even have, echoing in our ears from last week, John eleven forty seven and 48. Look up in your Bible with me at that. John eleven forty seven reads, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and they said, What are we going to do? For this man, Jesus, performs many signs. Verse 48. If we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That soundbite from verse 48 is the very thing that you read of in First, Mac, First and Second Maccabees of the uh, ongoing guerrilla warfare and taking and retaking and taking again of Jerusalem. So here we see the religious leaders, these Pharisees, they have a political concern. That if the people begin to follow Jesus, the Romans who are already occupying the land will come in force and take away both our place and our nation, which they eventually do in the year 70. So it appears these people who have come out before Jesus, the Pharisees themselves, there's this expectation implied in their actions that it's as if another Maccabean ruler has come. But even more so, the Davidic ruler promised all across the Old Testament. You see, these people are looking for a military victory in which Jesus will lead a coup against the Romans and all their vile practices and oppression. That's a possibility. That's a possibility that I think is pretty strong to explain why they do this event of taking off these palm branches and sing the psalm that they sing. But I do think there is an even stronger and more significant but subtle biblical connection that is typological in nature of what the crowds are unknowingly doing and what they're enacting as God orchestrates these events. So here's another proposal that I think can join together with this Maccabean proposal. What is it? The first man, Adam. Where did God place him? In a garden. A garden full of trees. In the Garden of Eden. And when Adam led human rebellion and sinned against God, God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden. Out of the tree-filled garden. And he cast them into the wilderness to the east. 
Now, we've seen before together that later, when God commands Israel to build the tabernacle and later the temple, that both the tabernacle and the temple were stylized as miniature replicas of the Garden of Eden. The tabernacle was a portable Garden of Eden, and later it was replaced and fixed as the temple, which was the fixed, stylized Garden of Eden. All throughout the the history of the people of Israel, especially in the tabernacle when they were in the wilderness for 40 years, when the high priest would enter into the tabernacle, God uniquely designed one door in and out of both the tent and the temple. And interestingly, the tent and the temple, the one door, faced east. The same direction as the exile of Adam and Eve. When God kicked them out of the garden, he put cherubim, brandishing swords, to keep them out of the garden. Embroidered on the curtain, both in the tabernacle and the temple, was cherubim, brandishing swords. But once a year, the high priest would come from the wilderness of exile, go away from the east, and head west into the tabernacle, into the temple, past the cherubim brandishing swords into the portable Garden of Eden and minister sacrifices before the Lord. And so when the people saw this, this became their hope. Only one person at one point had access to God only by sacrifice on their behalf, the high priest. And so the high priest was emblematic. He signified and symboled an Adam-like individual doing what the people couldn't do going in before the Lord, going into the garden, as it were. Jesus, we have seen over and over again, especially in the Gospel of John, is the last Adam. It's a significant title and argument of the New Testament is that Jesus is the true Adam. And remember what happened last night to our text. Mary had anointed Jesus' feet, symbolic of both the king and priest. And consider what Jesus does. He enters into Jerusalem, but Jerusalem has many gates. He could have entered from many different locations all around the city. But if we look at Matthew 21, 1, we find out that Jesus is coming from the Mount of Olives. Where is it? It's at the east gate on the east side. And so Jesus, of all the gates, is choosing to come from the Mount of Olives, heading west as the true king and last Adam into Jerusalem, and then he will go into the temple itself. So of all the places that Jesus could have orchestrated, this true and last Adam, the true king, the true uh, priest, Jesus is heading west into the temple. And whereas the angelic cherubim waves swords to prevent entry, now the people have come out and they are taking the trees and waving them, literal branches, as the last Adam is coming back into what is stylized as the Garden of Eden and only Jesus can go in. So the people likely have Maccabees in mind and they're out there doing this. But John, who knows his word, and we as the biblical reader who have the whole Bible fit together, Know that Jesus' hour has come 
We know the expectation all across the Bibles that we need a last Adam. We need a true king. We need a true priest who can offer a once for all sacrifice. And his name is Jesus. And he is coming in with these branches waving in the air. And notice also then as we move forward. Secondly, what they sing. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And what are the people doing? Well, they're singing Psalm 118. And they're most likely singing the whole psalm. In fact, after these words they sing, if they were to keep singing, it's going to talk about taking the sacrifice and binding it to the altar as Jesus enters in for Passover week. But, but, but John highlights for us Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26 conflated together. The people are singing, and the first thing they say is this. Hosanna. What is that? Hosanna is a transliterated word. What does that mean? That, that just means that they're taking the Hebrew word and putting English letters to it. So we're saying the Hebrew word in English, Hosanna. So it's untranslated. So to put it into English, it simply means save us now. So here's Jesus on the colt going to enter into Jerusalem. Palm fronds are out on the ground waving as if the trees are clapping their hands for Jesus to enter in. And the people are praying through song, save us now. And and the biblical irony is that they are most likely thinking of a political victory where a political ruler can rescue their postage-sized stamp of real estate on the globe and just give them a geopolitical victory. Little do they know that that prayer for save us now answers truly what they don't know they need answered, namely their sins being removed from them as far as the east is from the west. Their sins being taken off them and cast behind God's back. Their sins taken off them and thrown into the depths of the sea. Their sins thrown on the ground and trampled under Jesus' feet. So they sing, save us now. And little do they know that the Savior is literally before them. And as they're praying this prayer, singing to the one who can save them, Jesus, they continue Who comes in the name of the Lord. Now when they say that, they think that just, here's another representative. right? The kings were in the name of the Lord. The priests were in the name of the Lord. What they don't realize is that Jesus is the name of the Lord with skin on. Well, they don't realize we can cheat ahead to verse 41. And that Jesus is none other than Yahweh himself in the flesh. So they think, here's a a representative coming in the name of the Lord. They don't know that this is the name of the Lord, Jesus himself. And that's because the people, they're singing this. They add then, at the end, even the king of Israel. And that's not part of the text. You see, they've read their Bibles well. They know the expectation of the prophets that a king is coming. They know that Psalm 118 is a royal psalm. And so there's this messianic, Davidic king expectation that a savior is coming. But their minds are small. It's limited in the sense that they're thinking politically, not salvifically. They're looking for a temporary 
maybe lifetime and, until they go into the grave, political liberation where they can just govern themselves free from Roman tyranny, but they don't realize that they are actually singing to the one who will remove their sins from them. Which leads to the second point, the ride of triumph. So the branches are in the air, branches are on the ground, the people are singing, and then verses 14 and 15 read, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, John, the author, steps in here. He explains that Jesus has gone to get a donkey, but then now he explains to us why it's fulfillment. Fulfillment of what? Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9 is cited here in verse 15, and John is saying that this moment that's transpiring, palm branches, singing Psalm 118, Jesus riding the colt, all of this is in fulfillment of what was prophesied in Zechariah 9.9. Now, you remember what we are supposed to do with Old Testament texts and citations, right? You you double-click it. And it takes you back. Because when there's a citation, it's not just an atomized idea of taking this one verse and, 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 and giving a fulfillment here. No, when you go back, you are given a context. And the meaning of what was expected there is brought to the meaning of this moment. What do I mean? In Zechariah, there's a promised king. Not just in 9-9, the whole book. In in Zechariah, in in chapter 3, there's a promised king who will come. And this king will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day, we are told. And the result of that removal of the iniquity, we are told, is that everybody will come under his vine and fig tree and invite his neighbor to join him in Edenic language. And then in Zechariah 6, Zechariah 6 highlights that this Davidic king mysteriously will also be a high priest. So there's this prophetic expectation of having sin removed in a single day, that he will be a Davidic descendant and the true king. But somehow, contrary to Mosaic law, he'll be both a priest and king. That's the expectation. Or or, or back again in Zechariah 9, our, our text quoted at hand, if we were to keep reading past verse 9, we would learn more about this king who is riding on a colt, coming into Jerusalem, who should fear not. The end of verse 10 reads in Zechariah 9, His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. In other words, this king who is coming, contrary to the Maccabean-like expectations of the people of Israel, they don't yet realize that this Davidic priest king This last Adam, it is he who will have the dominion of all the earth and all the cosmos. It is his rightful rule and reign. And so Zechariah 9.10 promises that this king is not just a king of a postage stamp sized piece of land. Everything 
And verse 11 in Zechariah 9 reads, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So not only does this king remove iniquity in a single day, not only does he usher in an Edenic-like experience where people are inviting each other under their vine and fig tree, not only is he a priest, which means that he will be able to atone for sin, how will he do that? Verse 11 in Zechariah 9, because of the blood of my covenant with you. That is to say, the new everlasting covenant of peace. You know this language. Because almost every single Sunday when we take the Lord's Supper together, it's Jesus at the Last Supper taking cracker and cup and saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So the promise of Zechariah is a new king a new priest, a new covenant, a forever removal of sin, a dominion and reign to the ends of the earth. And the question is, how will he do this? Zechariah also tells us in Zechariah chapter 12. Perhaps this sounds familiar to you. Zechariah 12.10. This is what's said of the king. Now the Lord is speaking and he says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, Yahweh, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Zechariah prophesies that this king who will do all this work, they will pierce and kill. God will pour out grace. Then their eyes will see not just Jews, but Gentiles because his reign goes to the ends of the earth. And Zechariah 13, 1 tells us, on that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. That fountain is nothing less than the blood of Jesus Christ, their king whom they pierced, pouring from the cross. So when John cites Zechariah 9.9, you don't just go, huh, that's interesting. You go back to Zechariah 9.9 and, and Zechariah is connected to the book of the 12, which is connected to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel and more. And there's this pro pregnant prophetic expectation of who this Savior is. They don't yet get it, but that is what's happening. And so John has to tell us that this is in fulfillment of Zechariah 9 and more. But again, the question still lingers, why a donkey's cult? Of all that Jesus could do, why would Jesus choose a donkey? Now, from our cultural perspective, you, you look at this and you think, well, it's a sign of humility. Right? He's lowly and gentle and he is riding a donkey into Jerusalem to, to show forth 
uh, his humility. After all, it's not a war horse like the movies or a war horse like Revelation 19 when he returns. Plus, even if we were to go back to to Zechariah 9.9 and look at it or to look at the other citations in the other gospel accounts, we would see the word humble used, wouldn't we? Yes, we would. But not so fast. Not so fast. What does the Bible say? Our English translators in Zechariah 9, and then when it's cited again in the New Testament, are taking this Hebrew word and translating it as humble. It's definitely a possible translation. It definitely works. But I want to suggest to you a nuance. The same word used to describe the king going into Jerusalem and Zechariah 9.9 is the same word used way back in Exodus chapter 1. Verses 11 and 12 to describe Israel under the intense persecution of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's putting to death the baby boys. And the word in Exodus 1 is afflicted. Afflicted. Or fast forward ahead to Isaiah 53, that beloved passage of the 700 years before his crucifixion, Jesus, who is the Lamb of God who takes away our sins upon uh, upon him was the chastisement of us all. Jesus liberated us. This song of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, in verse 4 and in verse 7, the same Hebrew word is used again as Exodus 1, as Zechariah 9, 9. The word that is translated there in Isaiah 53, verse 4 and verse 7 to describe the ministry of the suffering servant is again afflicted. So that means to stay consistent, there's another translation option, which I think has a very strong case. We could retranslate into English, because this is an English issue, not a Hebrew issue. In English, Zechariah 9.9 can also read this then. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he afflicted and mounted on a donkey. Maybe a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. The connection here is that the king can bring salvation. The, the connection in Zechariah is how does he remove the iniquity of the land in a day? Well, we learn it's the blood of the covenant. But how? How does he bring this salvation? It's because he is the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He is the afflicted one. He is both afflicted as he goes into Jerusalem for the Passover week. And the ultimate affliction awaits a few days later. And the colt, again, why a donkey? Genesis 49. In Genesis 49, we have the prophecy that will unfold regarding Jesus. It's, it's spoken to Judah, but listen to this prophecy of a coming king. Genesis 49, 8. Keep in mind, we're asking the question, why a donkey? And I'm going to argue it's not to reinforce that Jesus is humble. Genesis 49, verse 8 reads, Judah is ultimately to Jesus. I don't have time to develop that. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Listen to this. 
Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Genesis 3.15. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Verse 10. The scepter. A king holds a scepter. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the ethne, the peoples, to the ends of the earth. Okay, so verse 11 of Genesis 49. The same ruler with his hand on the neck of his enemies, his brothers bowing down to him, all the peoples of the earth obeying him. He's holding a scepter in his hand. Verse 11, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. That's not humility. That's war victory. Revelation 19 picks up the same language to describe Jesus' robe dipped in blood. Or how about King Absalom? He was a wicked king. But what did he do when he rode into battle in 2 Samuel 18? He rode a donkey into battle in 2 Samuel 18. What about when David passed the kingship from David to his son Solomon? In 1 Kings chapter 1, as David orchestrates the events and all of Israel comes out for Solomon, of all things, to ride a donkey into Jerusalem. A donkey. David had Solomon ride a donkey into Jerusalem as a coronation. So, no, a donkey is not necessarily a symbol of humility and poverty. It's the opposite. Biblically, a donkey is a symbol of war and wealth. It's a regal symbol. So now what does this do? Jesus, I have argued from the Hebrew, sits there not as humble and lowly, but as the afflicted one. And that a donkey is not a symbol of humility and poverty, but of war and wealth. The point is that the juxtaposition of this verse is not that a high king is on a low donkey, but that an afflicted king is on a symbol of regal might. Jesus is the king. That is why he's allowing this open worship to take place. He is the true eternal king, and he will bring a military and political victory. But that victory is going to come not through overthrowing the Romans, but through overthrowing death, Satan, sin and the curse of the law through his shed blood on the cross and his resurrection from the grave for our justification. That's what Jesus is going to do. So yes, it's veiled, but when he rides this donkey, it shows that he is the true and greater Solomon going into Jerusalem. He is the true and greater high priest going into the temple to show who he is. And this leads us then to the response to triumph. What do you do with this? Let's look at verses 16 and 19. I like verse 16. John helps us. His disciples did not understand these things at first. So if this seems hard to understand and this seems a bit perplexing, you're in good company. Because all of this was not understandable until Jesus ascended and poured out his spirit 
upon which now we can understand his word truly as a true story of the world. So John helps us know that even as his disciples were walking alongside Jesus when he's on the colt and people are waving palm branches, no one got it. No one understood. That's why I said at the beginning that far more was unfolding than they realized as God orchestrated these events. So again, verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about Jesus and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done the sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. This text then gives us two responses. And the two responses are laid before us in verses 17 and 19. Because the crowds singing or not singing, waving and not waving the branches, show us a response that could be even in our own hearts. Look, verse 19, how do the self-righteous Pharisees respond? They had already plotted to kill Jesus. They'd hatched their plan in the previous chapter and they are beside themselves with anger and rage. Of all people, they were the ones who were accountable to know the Bible and what the Bible said. The sheer gravity and weightiness of Christ as he fulfills the scriptures. And when they saw this unfolding, it incited hatred in their own hearts. Why? They were self-righteous rather than Christ-righteous. Meaning, they trusted themselves and their ability to obey God's word, which really wasn't. And their ability to know God's word, which they really didn't. But they prided themselves that they didn't need the Savior. And when we go back to their warning that, look, everyone's going out after him and the Romans will come. They cared more, it seems, about their prestige and position as religious leaders than God actually becoming flesh to save. Is that you? You might be trusting in your own performance, your own perceived standing right now to think that who you are and what you do makes yourself right with God. Friend, if you have an attitude like that, you are putting yourself in the position of the Pharisees because you are thinking that you are self-righteous. But you have no righteousness, as God says. You need Christ's righteousness. You need Jesus to take your sins on the cross to bleed for you, to breathe his last breath so that you could be saved. That Christ would be afflicted in your place, that you could receive the limitless grace and love of God. Where are you in this? Had you been there, what would you have done in the crowd? Would you be a jeering face a week later as Jesus carries his cross, maybe down the same road? To Golgotha. The word is speaking to you right now. If you don't know Christ. To know him. To renounce your sins. And to turn to Jesus. Who alone can give you righteousness. And he is a willing savior. He brought you here this morning. To hear these words. So that you could hear this and believe. And be saved. 
But friend, if you continue to trust in yourself, then it's based on yourself that you will be condemned on that last day and sent into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the one who was pierced is looking you in the eyes and it's too late because today is the day of salvation. But there's another response and the other response is the response of so many of us in this room. It's verse 17. It's the end of verse 17. What, what did the crowds who were singing and dancing and waving these palm fronds in the air, what did they do? Verse 17 ends, the crowds continued to bear witness. Can you sing, friends? Can you sing with the crowd? Can you sing, save me, Lord? Do you agree Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you continually trust Christ as the treasure of your salvation? Do you truly count Jesus as the blessed one? When you think of Jesus, there's many things to think as the Bible gives us. But do you think of him rightly as he is on his terms? And today we see that Jesus is the afflicted king He is the afflicted king who bears his scars into eternity, whose blood is our peace, whose blood is the new everlasting covenant of peace. You got up out of bed this morning to come sit in these seats and sing these songs and pray these prayers and sit under the word preached so that you could honor this king, this God-man. Does your life evidence That you have sworn allegiance and vowed fealty to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Worshipping him and following him on his terms. Because if you have, there is a statement that I skipped over. That we need to circle back and look at. If Jesus is your king, because you have bowed before him and he has saved you. Look at verse 15. Here's the comfort that hangs over us. It's the first words, fear not. The prophet Zechariah, quoted by John, as this moment unfolds of the afflicted king on his war donkey, comes into Jerusalem. As the people sing their song, the response is singular. Fear not. If Jesus Is this and more, and he is, the last Adam, the true king, the high priest, the one fulfilling all that Zechariah and all the prophets and all the Bible says, if he is this God in the flesh, Yahweh in the flesh, then of whom shall you be afraid? And of what shall you be afraid? Jesus has been afflicted by God, so you would not have to. But instead to receive the immeasurable righteousness, love, and grace of Christ. Church, fear not. Jesus has conquered. Jesus has conquered and overcome death because he is the king. He has conquered and overcome sin and Satan and the curse of the law because he is the sacrifice. So what can be done to you? What can death do to you? What can the devil do to you? What can the curse of the law do to you? Nothing. Because your king has conquered. There is nothing in all creation. 
from demons to angels to yourself to the virus to politics and social uprest, there is nothing in all creation that can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, fear not. Jesus is the king of all creation. He holds every moment, every molecule, and every mind in his hand. And so he gives, if he gives us the privilege of being imprisoned for his namesake, beaten for his namesake, killed for his namesake, loved for his namesake, fear not. If you contract the virus and die because of it, fear not. Because everything is unfolding according to his plan. Because the response of the people is they continued to bear witness. There is a king who rules over all creation. And he is humble. And he is afflicted. And he has worked. And it is done. And because of that, we now can be emboldened, like this crowd, to continue to bear witness. That's the missional impulse of this. That we, like this crowd, go out these doors because there is nothing left for us to fear and to worship our God because He is the conquering, dying, and everlasting living King. So you've come in here with anxieties. And they may be real. And fears. They could be founded. But the text says, underneath, behind, and before, and all those things, and undergirding it all, is this phrase, fear not, Jesus reigns. And so, church, we fear not. And it's these words like this that motivate us to continue to bear witness, like this crowd, waving the palms. We wave them, as it were, with our words. Because just as this verse was 9-9 or Zechariah 9-9 is true for the first coming fear not daughter of Zion listen to those tender words God is speaking to his people as a young daughter fear not helpless one fear not daughter of Zion behold your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt and it's gonna happen again have you read Revelation 19 Jesus is coming back and this verse is as true as it was then as we can say it again for the future when Jesus comes back and he establishes kingdom finally, fully, and forever in the physical world. So church, fear not. Let's live and die for Jesus and continue to bear witness. Amen? Father, we thank you for the gift.